This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. Welcome back to All the Sins of Wisconsin. I'm Fallon, and I am here with Mims. How are you? I'm doing great. Yes. It's been a, a kind of a long week, would you say? Yes. <laughs> That's an understatement. I feel like it's been chaotic. Yeah. I know a lot of parents have been incredibly stressed. A lot of parents experienced a lot of loss this week. Yes. Good. I'm glad you touched base on that. Um, wow. What a fucking tragedy. Yeah, and then just the poor handling of everything just adds to the tragedy. Yeah, it's like another slap in the face. Yeah, I don't know how it took them 91 minutes to go inside. I don't know why police went inside and got their kids and left other kids in there. There's a lot going on. Oh my god. Wow, 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 wow. But I feel for all of the families. Yeah, because it was like 18 kids, right? Yeah, I think so. Maybe 19. And if you guys aren't aware of what we're talking about um this was the i forget what the school was but it was a um was it an elementary school yeah an elementary school shooting in texas um just that happened this week i don't know which day either um but that was that's what we're talking about right now yeah crazy i just don't understand how just going to school is like a threatening place to be or why people target schools to begin with I don't understand either Mm -hmm. and I don't understand I don't know what the situation was there but I've been seeing things about people that cities that don't have locked schools like our schools are secure yeah you gotta press a button and get admitted in and usually not like they will let me drop stuff off on the table outside and tell me to go home <laughs> the kids will come and get it it's later like, all right you know who i am yeah, they're like they've known me for years so they'll still be like okay Fallon, leave it on the table <laughs> nobody is entering this building yeah yeah well i mean they're doing their job and think think the universe that they're doing their job because Definitely. there's a lot of schools that don't have that yes so I appreciate the people at my kids' elementary school that guard the door. <laughs> yes, and we appreciate all First the teachers. First defense for the kids. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Like, they have to do the most just to teach. Yeah. They have to take all these preventative measures now. Like, i seen this one teacher uh, create a video of, like, what she does she like pulls down the blinds mm-hmm. and she like the little crack in the door or that's a little window she like has a little like makeshift like blind for that like she has yeah. a little cabinet that you can fit like people in mm-hmm. and like different 
uh, things that she practices too, just for situations like that. And it's like, she, these people are literally just going to learn, like yeah. going to learn their children. What is wrong with you? I don't know. Oh. And the most heartbreaking thing, I was watching TikTok, of course. Yeah. And there was a school psychologist on there, and she said she had been talking to one of the students, like mm. a second grader, I think. And the second grader was like, well, are you sad and are you scared? Because my mom is sad and scared. And the psychologist was like, well, yeah, I am. Are you? And she's like, no, when it happens, I know what to do. Exactly. Like she said when it happens. When it happens. If it happens. Right. But all the kids feel like it's a good chance that someday they'll be at school and somebody will try to kill them. Horrendous. Mm -hmm. Horrendous. And guns are something that you and I both enjoy. Yeah. Both support. We don't think that, you know, getting rid of guns is something that's necessary but right. also arming fucking teachers i feel like that's just a little bit out there especially since a lot of teachers don't want to do it i think it, yeah. if, if it ever did come to that it would definitely have to be a voluntary situation yeah like like you can carry at school but then you have to worry about like students grabbing them because oh, even yes in situations like jails the guards and the police have to leave their guns before they go inside because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. safety safety yeah. you never know when you could be in a position where somebody could take it from you right and these kids are bad as hell these days mm. yes so and, and then i don't some, know the answers right but to me that doesn't seem like the appropriate answer especially no. like they they're going to do their job like i go to do my job and mm -hmm. i don't think okay i need to prepare myself with a gun or any sort of weapon just to do my job like right. i don't ever think that way right and i don't think they should too they shouldn't i think a lot of it comes down to mental health care in our country it's not very accessible hmm. it's not great when it is and it's not really it, for most people it's not talked about either like no. it's like still stigmatized and i don't understand why that's still a thing either me either <clears throat> everybody needs therapy yeah <laughs> even the most julia and andrews yeah beautiful woman and she probably needs therapy too yeah everybody 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 needs to talk to somebody oprah yeah i bet she's in therapy probably she's got coaches for sure yeah so there you go so, be like oprah lock your damn schools yeah. just like we're telling people lock your house lock your car lock your damn schools yeah lock lock everything up because i saw a video of people going to tour a school that was in la it was completely unlocked they just walked right in why yeah that's also that very makes me scary. very uncomfortable yeah because anything could happen if i was able to walk into my kid's school i would complain <laughs> I should not be allowed to walk freely amongst right. my kids' school. Like Without that should anybody not be asking me what my business is. Right? Like. No, that's that's fair. <laughs> if somebody walks through where I work, I'm like, "What are you doing here?" Exactly. <laughs> like, and I and I work in kind of like, I I would say like, in the public. Right. And I'd still be like, "What state your business?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what is your business here? I I feel that. Yeah. Okay. We've, we've bitched enough. <laughs> you got anything else? Um, 
I don't think so. Okay. So, I believe it's my turn. It is your turn. You get to finish your crazy, this crazy is part story. two. Yep, of the craziness. The Peter Curtin craziness. And now the episodes will run perfectly together. I know. Besides for our chit-chat at the beginning. Right, yeah. <laughs> Just fast forward if you need to to get to the meat and potatoes of this, because here we go. We're back into it. I'm sorry to leave you on, leave you on a cliffhanger. I had to do it, though. There's a yeah. lot of information. Yeah, definitely. Um, so last episode, we left off on the crime spree. Mm-hmm. On this one, we're talking about the capture and the imprisonment. And then what happens afterwards, um, I gave you a little bit of like a synopsis at the beginning of the last episode, but we're going to go into full detail. All right. My sources remain the same, so I'm not going to cite them, but there are going to be in the show notes. Okay. Um, also, in the last episode, I called Marie Maria, so that was a mistake of mine. It was Anne Marie. It was not Anne uh maria okay there you go all right let's go back into this let's do it fuck face (laughs) okay well i wanted to get your thoughts because we you were kind of shook after listening to all of that (laughs) and you were just kind of like wow like that's a lot of information but how did you feel about all of that it just amazes me that people can do so many crimes Mm. and act so crazy Mm -hmm. and just keep getting out Right, right. And keep doing it for the majority of their life and just, like, freely doing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what blew my mind. Yeah. How freely he was able to do everything. Nobody put a stop to the madness. Right, right. That's a good point. At some point, you see people, like, you keep killing people or sexually assaulting people or, you know, torturing people. Mm Mm-hmm. We probably shouldn't keep letting you out. Right. I'm all for, like, prison reform and giving people lesser sentences, but not if they're like that. Right. Okay. Well, good point. Um, So, by the late summer of 1929, the murders committed by the vampire of Dusseldorf were receiving considerable national and international attention. Uh, which I'm sure Peter absolutely loved. Right. It was fueled by, of course, the savagery, the diverse background of the victims, and the different methods in which he assaulted and murdered uh, the victims as well. Yeah, because that is interesting, too. A lot of people pick one race of victims and one killing method. Like, I like to stab people. I like to hit people with a hammer. He's just like... Some days I'm a hammer guy, some days I'm a scissors guy, you know? Right, yep. And then, like, a lot of the... Towards the end, it was kind of less sexual. Well, I mean, it's sexual in his mind, but, like, towards the victims. Mm -hmm. So that also, to me, was, like, another variant that was thrown in. Yeah. Um, Just a lot of things that he did just was, like, not something that a lot of these people do. So that's... Right, he's so erratic yeah. with what he picked to do, who he picked to do it to, how yeah. he did it. He doesn't really fit into any of the standards that we're used to. Right, right. A pattern, yeah. victimology, like yeah. that was just so, he was so off the radar. He was just like so bloodthirsty, I guess is the way to yeah. sum that up. And then that made me think, how many other cases are there when they can't figure out who it was because they were like him? Yeah. 
Scary. So we're always looking for a pattern. Right, right. And sometimes, I guess, with him, there just was no pattern. Mm -hmm. so. so let's get into... Okay. Let's get into it. Yes. Uh, so by the end of 1929, the Dusseldorf uh, police had received more than 13,000 letters from the public providing leads, tips, and general concern. Um, I mean, obviously, the That's public was freaking out. Like, they yeah. couldn't stand a murdering madman just running around. So every person, they're like, it's this guy, it's that guy, he's a freak, like, whatever, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine, like, the townspeople with their pitchforks. Just any anybody that just was, like, slighted them that day, they're like, this, this guy is it, you know? <laughs> so with assistance from the surrounding police forces, each lead was pursued. Yeah. So no stone went unturned on this case because it was very important to catch this person. And as a result of this collective investigation into the killings, more than 9,000 individuals were interviewed. Wow. 2,650 other clues were pursued. And a list of 900,000 different names were compiled upon an official potential suspect list. That's a ridiculous suspect list. Let's just like com like compress it like let's just get the the people that you know is not relevant off of that list yeah but otherwise I it's just like everybody <coughs> is a suspect right everybody's a suspect <laughs> <laughs> i love that um two days after the last murder he committed of gertrude alberman a local commie communist yeah communist i was gonna say columnist but it's communist newspaper received a map revealing the location of the grave of maria han in this drawing peter also revealed precisely where he had left uh the body in this letter it described where i just said that <laughs> <laughs> i hate when i do that okay so she was to be found face down among bricks and rubble and then an analysis of the handwriting revealed that it was the same individual who had anonymously informed police in a letter dated October 14th that he had killed Marie and buried her body at the edge of the woods. Each of the three letters Peter had sent to the newspaper and police describing what he had done and threatening further assaults and murders were examined by a graphologist. And what a graphologist is, as you probably may know, is an individual who studies and analyzes handwriting in an attempt to determine someone's personality traits. I've never heard of this. Oh, okay. Interesting. Slapping you with some facts real yeah. quick. Uh, so no scientific evidence exists to support graphology, and it is generally considered pseudoscience. Um, so this graphologists confirm uh, that the same individual had written each letter. I mean, I feel like you can probably tell whose handwriting is whose, so I don't think it's like that far off. I don't... It's really complicated. <laughs> handwriting analysis is really complicated. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. you're trying to not... Right. Yeah. If you're trying to write like someone else, mm -hmm. it's hard to tell. Yeah. But I have, like, the same big sloppy handwriting and everything right. that I write. So, like, if I were to hand you a piece of paper now and then one a week later, I know you'd be like, oh, that's her handwriting. Right. Um, so this led Ernst Gannett, the chief inspector of the Berlin police, to conclude that one man was responsible for most of all of the 
assaults and murders. And as well, as we all know, that they were suspicious that it was one person. However, as mentioned before, we do know that accepting and piecing together that there is a potential serial killer is kind of grandiose. It's not very... They don't really like to say that it's one person. I don't know why they don't, but... I think it causes a panic. Yeah. But I mean... There's already a panic. There's already a panic. They have nine million suspects. Dying on the streets and shit. Like, getting stabbed just, like, walking down to the corner market and, like, just getting randomly attacked. Like, I mean, people are on on edge. Yeah, I would would imagine. (laughs) On May 14th, 1930... Uh, Maria Budlick stepped off of a train at Dusseldorf Station. A man offered to show her the way to a woman's hostel. However, she refused, and when she realized that he might be the so-called vampire of Dusseldorf, and on top of being an outsider, she was skeptical with mostly anybody, like anybody would be. Yeah, anybody smart. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So this man became angry and started to argue with her. And then another man overheard the fight and chased the first man off. So this savior man seemed harmless. So when he invited her to his apartment for dinner and drinks, she didn't fully accept as she thought it was under the pretense of sex. To which he graciously stated, listen, I totally understand. I am a stranger. This is a new town. It's not like I just want to. It's not like that. I just want to make sure that you're okay." You know, along those lines and summarizing. (laughs) So she was like, okay, yeah, that's fine, and went back to his house for dinner and drinks. Uh, Then he volunteered to help her find a hostel to stay at since she was new in the area and didn't know her surroundings. So dinner was nice. She went over there. Nothing funky happened. Okay. On the way there, things took a turn. He led her to a mostly deserted wooded area and then started to strangle her while raping her at the same time. She then started to scream, and to everyone's surprise, he let her go, and he just turned and walked away. That's interesting. So, Maria did not report this assault to police, but described her attack in a later uh, in a letter to a friend, although she addressed the letter incorrectly. The letter was actually opened at the post office by a clerk on May 19th because they were like, okay, well, what is this about? Don't <laughs> think you should be doing that, but kind of cool that this yeah, happened. No, super nosy <laughs> clerk at the post office. I that would be me. Me too. That would be like, okay, well, this is not getting anywhere, so I'm just I mean, going to read we're it. We're just going to have to throw it somewhere anyway, so we might as well read it. I love this person. <laughs> So, upon reading the contents of the letter, this clerk forwarded the letter to the police. Oh, good. See, her instincts were right. Something happened, and the universe was like, nope, you gotta read this letter, you gotta, like, get things into your own hands, like, we're doing the damn thing. Um, So, this letter was read by Chief Inspector Gannett, who who assumed that there was a slim chance that Maria's rapist might be the Dusseldorf vampire. Although it did kind of seem strange that he let her go. Mm-hmm. So he interviewed Maria, who basically told him everything that happened. She was very reluctant, though. And she said that Peter had spared her life because she had falsified and falsively. Falsify. Wow, that 
I don't know why I struggled so hard, <laughs> informed him that she could not remember his address. So that was like, I still don't get why he let her go, though, because when has that ever mattered? Yeah, I don't know. So she agreed to lead the police to Peter's home. And I honestly just cannot believe that he brought her to his house. To his home. So when they got there, the landlady of the property let Maria and the inspector into room 71. She definitely confirmed to the chief inspector that that was his address and that that was his name. So although Peter was not at home at the time when they were going through his property and they were going through his property without a warrant they were just like whatever we're gonna break (laughs) down this door we're coming in for you like it doesn't matter um peter did arrive home and spotted the pair in the hallway and just kind of like skirted out of there before Mm. capture nobody else was like standing lookout (laughs) you know like should we have more than the victim and then like the chief like should we have more (laughs) Okay. Just a thought. Yeah, um, just they need us to help them. Yeah, <laughs> we should be advisors to police departments. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> so Peter then knew that the jig was up. So investigators knew his identity, where he lived, and that there was not much left to do but for him to basically turn himself in and confess. First, he confessed to his wife that he raped Maria Budlick who was the person that brought him down. Oh, so he did still have his wife. Yeah, so I was literally just about to say, (laughs) to answer your question in the last episode, yes, they were still married. Jesus. Don't stand by your man. Do not. (laughs) This is not the case. No. Don't do that. Do not be a ride or die. (laughs) No, not for this man. No. And he also told her that because of his previous convictions, he may receive 15 years for... A punishment, and I'm like, what made you think of that? That was very specific. And can you imagine me and his wife? And he's just like, oh, by the way, mm-hmm. I have a secret apartment <laughs> where I take girls and then I rape them. Yeah, yeah. And I never stated I might get 15 years. Yeah, for a rape, and I feel like rapes wouldn't get 15 years. So I'd be like, what? What do you mean? Yeah. Uh, so, with his wife's consent, he found a place to hide out in the Alderstraub district of Dusseldorf and did not return to his own home until May 23rd. He needed his wife's permission for that. I know. Right? Like, all of a sudden, you need permission for things. So, Peter urged his wife to collect the substantial reward offered for his capture in order to ease her burden. That was really considerate. And I think Maria should have gotten that damn reward because she was the final piece and that nailed him. So fuck all that. Like She deserved to get paid for all of that. And then uh, his wife contact- contacted the police the following day in order to collect the reward with information that was provided to detectives about her husband. She explained that although she had known her husband had been repeatedly imprisoned in the past... She was unaware of his culpabilities in any of the murders or assaults. She then added that her husband had confessed to her um, about everything that had happened and was willing to confess to the police as well. 
she told so him she heard about all of it <clears throat> i don't think so okay i don't think so i don't think he may end up no which is another thing that i get really frustrated about with people that commit these heinous murders assaults whatever they do and they don't have the balls to say what they did you have the balls to fucking do it but you don't have Mm -hmm. the balls to say what you did yeah doesn't make any sense no so she told investigators to be at the saint roaches church later that day as he was supposed to be there in the afternoon peter Curtin was arrested at gunpoint on that very day just in, in front of the church. <laughs> it's a good place for him to get arrested. Right. During his confessions, he freely admitted his guilt in all the crimes uh, police had attributed to the vampire of Dusseldorf. He then confessed he had committed the unsolved murder of Christine Klein and the attempted murder of Gertrude Franken in 1913. In total, Curtin admitted to 68 crimes, including nine murders and 31 attempted murders. Wow. He he remembered all of them. I know, right? Well, I feel like these people don't forget. It's interesting. Like, I I act foolishly one night in, like, a a drunken state, and I will never forget that. So. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean. I guess. He made no excuses and just stated that he committed the crimes due to the injustices he had endured throughout his life. Oh, <clears throat> people were mean to him, so he needed to kill everyone. Right, and suck their blood and rape them and hmm. kill tro- children. Okay. So nonetheless, he was adamant he had not tortured any of his child victims, which I beg to differ, sir. Right. He told investigators that in... The Maria Hahn murder, he had drunk so much blood from her neck that he had vomited. Peter also admitted to having decapitated a swan in the spring of 1930 in order to drink the blood for sexual gratification. This guy is twisted. Why a swan? (laughs) I don't know. Like, (laughs) leave that swan alone. Yeah. So they got the bad guy. Now what? Yeah, now what? Well, while Peter awaited his trial, uh, then later as he awaited his execution, he was extensively interviewed by Dr. Carl Berg. In these interviews, he stated to Dr. Berg that his primary motive in committing any form of criminal activity was one of sexual pleasure, as we all kind of knew that. Yeah. And that this really took off when he had been isolated from human contact during his imprisonment. The majority of his assaults and murders had been committed when his wife had been working evenings, which is why she did not know much of what was going on. Mm. It was ultimately determined that the actual sight of his victim's blood had been integral to his sexual simulation. So it was mostly about the blood and Mm. what, what... the blood was produced by yeah uh and the feeling of the tension he experienced before the crime would be superseded by one of relief once he saw the blood so anything before feeling like this is wrong or whatever i don't think he ever did but everything just washed away once he Mm -hmm. saw the blood so here's a quote from peter in regards to his weapons he stated 
whether I took a knife or a pair of scissors or a hammer in order to see blood. In order to see blood was a matter of indifference to me or mere chance. Often after the hammer blows, the bleeding victims moved and struggled just as they did when they were throttled. Hmm. Kind words. Very great. Peter further confided that although he had occasionally raped his female victims, he had only done so to make it seem like that it was sexually motivated. He also confessed that many of his later strangulation victims had only survived his attacks because he had achieved an orgasm at the first sight of them bleeding. But we all know that when it comes to people like Peter Curtin, he uh, isn't always telling the truth, so... Right, because why would he only rape Maria then? Like, he didn't kill her, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't sexual. Right. He ended up contradicting these claims by proclaiming to both Dr. Berg and legal examiners that his primary motive in all his criminal activities was to both strike back at an oppressive society for what he considered the injustice of his being repeatedly incarcerated throughout his life and as a form of revenge for the neglect and abuse he had endured as a child. Hmm. Peter explained that he deliberately broke minor prison rules as a means of guaranteeing that he would be sentenced to solitary confinement so that he could indulge in these sexual, psychosexual fantasies. Oh. Right, so he needed his alone time hmm. in order to think these twisted thoughts. So he could get out and go on a spree. Yeah, probably, like, just pre-planning. Yeah. So both Dr. Berg and other psychologists concluded that Peter was not insane and was fully able to control his actions and appreciated the criminality of his conduct. So he knew right from wrong. Mm. He knew that what he was doing was something that he could get punished for that was a crime. Right. But yet, I mean, that doesn't... I mean, if you know that, then you're not clinically insane. Right. So, surprisingly enough, it was ruled that Peter was legally sane and competent to stand trial. On April 13th, 1931, Peter Curtin stood trial in Dusseldorf for all of his heinous crimes. He was charged with nine counts of murder and seven of attempted murder and was tried before presiding judge Dr. Rose... Dr. Rose. Oh, cool. Uh, Peter Curtin pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity on all counts, but they just said that you're (laughs) not insane. (laughs) Like, we're not buying it, Peter. Peter would spend the duration of his trial surrounded by a heavily guarded shoulder-high iron cage specifically constructed to protect him from being attacked by enraged relatives of the victims and his feet were shackled whenever he was inside of the cage as well Hmm. i mean i would want to attack this fucker (laughs) right so proceedings began with the prosecution formally reciting each of the charges against peter before they recited the openly provided confession he gave to police so they had that to slap him with yeah when asked why the presiding judge Okay, sorry. When asked by the presiding judge to describe why he had continued to commit commit acts of arson throughout 1929 uh, through 1930, 
He explained, when my desire for injuring people awoke, the love of setting fire to things awoke as well. Hmm. So the sight of the flames excited me, but above all, it was the excitement of the attempts to extinguish the fire as the agitation of those who saw the property being destroyed. Oh, so he liked to make the people mad. Yeah. That makes sense. Peter then instructed his defense attorney that he wished to change his plea uh, to one of guilty. Hmm. So Good for you, Peter. <laughs> Addressing the court, Peter proclaimed, I have no remorse as to whether recollection of my deeds makes me feel ashamed. I will tell you that thinking back to all the details is not at all unpleasant. I rather enjoy it. That's a great thing to tell a judge. I would literally slap him so hard. That's why he's in the cage. The police probably want to slap (laughs) him, too. Peter then stated he did not have a conscience uh, when he was asked by the judge. Hmm. Because the judge was like, are you you even human? Do you have a conscience? Like, you don't feel guilty at all? He was like, no. So, to counteract Peter's insanity defense, the prosecution introduced five of the most prestigious doctors and psychiatrists in Germany to testify at the trial. Each testified that Peter was legally sane and had been perfectly in control of his actions and impulses at all times. Professor Franz Zioli testified that Peter... Peter's actual motivation in his crimes being that of desire to achieve the sexual gratification. The only way to achieve this was by acts of brutality, violence, misery, and misery his action caused to others. Dr. Carl Berg testified that Peter's motive was actually 90% uh, sadism and 10% revenge relating to his perceived sense of injustice for both the neglect and abuse he had endured, both as a child and the discipline he endured while incarcerated. So, a lot of it was for himself and his own sexual gratification. Right. Rather than... Because maybe he was mad a little bit, but... Yeah. He was mostly... I mean, his childhood probably molded him into a sociopath. Absolutely. That's why he doesn't have a conscience. Right. Also disclosed in the first week of the trial were the deaths of the two boys who Peter had confessed to drowning at the age of nine. The prosecution suggesting these deaths indicated Peter had displayed a homicidal um, tendencies dating much earlier than 1913. So he was basically, like you said, molded. Molded at a very young age. Yeah. So upon cross-examination, Peter's defense attorney Dr. Alex I don't, are all these people doctors? Dr. Alex Weiner <laughs> did challenge these experts conclusions, arguing the sheer range of perversions his client had engaged clearly indicated insanity. Not really. I would, I would probably never take this case. Like, <laughs> that guy has like a hill to climb. A mountain. Yeah. yeah. In a further attempt to discredit the the validity of many of the charges, Attorney Weiner also questioned whether the occasional physical inaccuracies of the crime described his client's confession equated to to Peter. So basically it was like, were all these crimes his? Well, we don't really know. They're all really weird. They're 
<laughs> you know, like, <sighs> I hope that's exactly it. <laughs> this is all really weird. <laughs> so he also stated that Peter was possessed. He had possessed a diseased mind. Mm-hmm. He might be possessed. <laughs> <laughs> Something's possessing him, but it's not a diseased mind. No. Uh, Dr. Berg refuted that sections of Peter's confessions, confessions were false, but argued that the knowledge he possessed of the murder scenes and the wounds inflicted upon the victims left him in no doubt as to that it was actually him who committed them. So he was like, no, you don't have the leg to stand on. He knew almost everything about what had happened to these people. He drew maps. Like, he tied himself to these crimes pretty well, even though sometimes mm-hmm. he lied. Right. So, this trial lasted 10 days in total. A lot of back and forth. A lot of craziness. Sounds like a circus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On April 22nd, the jury delivered their verdict. They deliberated for only under two hours before reaching their verdict. Mm. When you hear that, it's either really good or really bad. Mm-hmm. But it's like they had no doubt. Right. For this. Yeah. They're like, bring us some snacks. We're right. talk for a minute. I'd be like, let's talk shit real quick and then we gotta get back in there and get him to, to prison. But like, damn, that was a lot of information. Yeah. They found Peter Curtin guilty and sentenced to death on nine counts of murder. He was also found guilty of seven counts of attempted murder. Peter had no emotion as the sentence was passed, although in his final address to the court, he stated that he now saw his crimes as being so ghastly that he did not want to make any sort of excuse for them. Hmm. A little too late. No kidding. I am thoroughly and 100% surprised that he even said that at all. Yeah, somebody must have told him to. Right. Um, Peter did not file an appeal for his conviction, although he submitted a petition to be pardoned uh, by <laughs> for the Minister of Justice, who was known as an opponent to a capital punishment. But it's like, why would we waste it on <laughs> you? Pardon you. Yeah, you're literally called the vampire of Dusseldorf. The mm-hmm. monster of Dusseldorf. Come on. We're not going to pardon that guy. No, not unless you could buy pardons back then, like you can now. <laughs> <laughs> She's coming for him. So the petition was formally rejected on July 1st. Good. He then decided it was, what if I was like, plot twist? <laughs> He's free. He lives in Wisconsin. He's like a thousand years old. (laughs) He then decided it would be a good idea to write letters of apologies to the relatives of the victims and Mm. as a final farewell letter to his wife. I feel bad for his wife. How did you marry this monster? What is wrong with her? Well, she wasn't, she was incarcerated. No, she killed her ex-husband too. So she's got to be some, unless it was provoked. Right. Unless he was like... How, that's what I mean. How did she not kill Peter? She's a killer. Right. She had a... She liked Peter. How can you like Peter? Uh, I have a lot of questions about their relationship. Nobody gets it. <laughs> he... Okay. On the evening of July 1st, 1931, Peter received his last meal. Do you want to guess what it was? This is Germany. So... 
Mm, sausages. Sauerkraut. No. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're done. <laughs> I'm done. He ordered Wiener Schnitzel. Yeah, those are sausages. Oh. oh. I thought it was like some sort of like dish. It might be. Oh, okay. okay. A bottle of white wine mm. and fried potatoes. He then I like fried potatoes. I've never had fried potatoes. What? Is that French fries? No, you like cut up the potatoes and you fry them in a pan. And then they're like chips? No, they're kind of soft but kind of crunchy. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so confused now. No. <laughs> uh, so then after eating all of it immediately, he then requested another helping to which he ate. Mm. At 6 o'clock on the morning of July 2nd, Peter Curtin was executed by Carl Groppler um, by the guillotine. Oh. He, if n- n- nobody knows what a guillotine is, it's basically a decapitator. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so this was on the grounds of the Klingenhutz prison in Cologne. He, wa- he was walked... Uh, assisted by a the prison psychiatrist and a priest. Shortly before his head was placed on the guillotine, uh, Peter turned to the psychiatrist and asked the question everyone has talked about over and over again. He, he asked, tell me after my head is chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment, the sound of my own blood gushing from the stump of my neck? That would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. Oh. And then when asked if he had any last words, he creepily smiled and said, no. Mm. After the execution in 1931, as we all know, his head was bisected and mummified. Later, the brain was removed and subjected to forensic analysis, and Peter's brain revealed no abnormalities. The autopsy conducted upon Peter's body revealed that aside from his his having an enlarged thymus gland. Thymus? Maybe. <laughs> I feel like that's not how you say that. Okay, well, thymus gland is, so if you guys don't know what that is, it's responsible for uh, fighting off infections and keeping the immune system in check. So really nothing to do with, like, your mental state. Um, to do with, like, it's not like a murder gland. <laughs> no, it's not a murder gland, just to... <laughs> I just wanted to rule that out. Um, So really, there wasn't anything that he was suffering um, physically or, you know, from what we could see psychologically. He didn't have any abnormalities. Uh, The interviews Peter had with Dr. Carl Berg in 1930 and 1931 truly proved to be the first psychological study conducted upon a sexual serial killer. Hmm. Very interesting. Peter Curtin's head was transported to the United States and is currently on display at the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Wisconsin Dells in Wisconsin. And if any of you end up going there and seeing Peter's head, go ahead and take a picture and tag us in it. Is it like his whole head? Does he still have hair? It's his whole head. There's, I think there's like the, the teeth, the eyes... Really? It's slit in half. Eyes. I don't know. I'm, I'd have to look at it again. <laughs> but it's kind of like split in half. So it's like connected, but like this. So you can oh, see like the, the okay. inside like of it. Cake? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Like a cake. Um, okay. 
so yeah we want to be on your journey through this i mean we did just tell you a lot about it so i, I want to be there present spiritually so take a picture tag us we're gonna have to go one day we're gonna have to we have a lot of places to go <laughs> um so if anyone is interested in taking a deeper dive into this story uh, believe it or not this is just scratching the surface there are a lot of good books you can read the sadist by carl berg monsters of weimer by carl berg and um george godwin wrote monster the true story of serial killer curtain and there's a lot more um so yes, this story is about Peter Curtin and all of his heinousness, but it's above all else about the people he brutally affected. Mm-hmm. This is about the survivors who are Gertrude Schultz, Gertrude Franken, Mech and Tidy, the 18-year-old woman, the 30-year-old man, and the 37-year-old woman who were the stabbing victims and the two women who survived their hammer attacks. Um, also, the victims who were taken away by this monster, um, Christine Klein, Maria Hahn, Gertrude Hammock, Louise Lenzen, Ida Ruder, Elizabeth Dorier, Gertrude Alberman, Apollonia Kahn, Rosa Olinger, and Rudolf Shear. And that is the story. Great job. Peter Curtin. Thank you. That was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. And you did a great job. Thank you. I might have given up halfway through that research. <laughs> I was like, just <laughs> diving and diving. Ending. I know. It was a lot. And I'm like, there's just so much more that I can't possibly pack into. I wish I could. But, yeah. I mean, if you're interested, it is a very interesting story. There's a ton of content. So feel mm. free. Yeah. Awesome. All right, today I am telling the story of Ruth Ann Holmberg, and my sources are the charlieproject.org, groups.google.com, which I didn't know was a thing. Groups.google.com. It's like a chat room, kind of. Hmm, okay. Interesting. And newspapers.com, an article from there, and I'll have the exact links in the show notes. So let's start with the beginning. Okay. In 1976, Ruth got married for the second time. This time she married Gary Holmberg, and then they moved to a (laughs) 40-acre property on Leslie Road in Dane County. Gary was a German immigrant. He was the president of Milfab, a wood processing company in Stoughton, Wisconsin. So it sounds like a great new life. She is, you know, getting remarried. They got this beautiful property. Her new husband is president of a company. A fresh start. Fresh start for everybody. Mm-hmm. Or not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the pair struggled with marital problems. Unbeknownst to Ruth, Gary was having an affair with her son's wife, Sharon Jacobson. Oh. My. God. Yeah, so Ruth had a son from her previous marriage. He was married to Sharon, and Sharon and Gary were having an affair. That's so sick on so many levels. So sick. I don't yeah. understand. Although Ruthie was unaware of the relationship between the two, her son, Rick Nordness, had found the two out. Oh, oh, that's like the mm-hmm. levels of sickness. Like, 
you're fucking my dad. Yeah. And then the wife, you're having an affair with our sons, or well, I guess it was hers. Yeah. You know? Yeah. His wife, like, out of all people? Yeah. So, one day Rick was looking for a calendar in his wife's purse. Oh. And he finds the calendar, and he finds a love letter from oh. his stepdad. Oh, God. And this letter was very explicit, describing Sharon's sexual abilities. Oh, no. And how much he loved kissing her. <sighs> no. Is this what people did before sexting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just, like sexual letters ew. to each other? Yeah. Gross. I don't know, for some reason that really grossed me out. Yeah. Well, because you think <laughs> about it, and they took the time to do this. To, mm-hmm. Oh, I guess you take the time to send a quick text, but whatever it is weird it's weird yeah so rick confronted his wife sharon and she told him like it's whatever the affair already ended no it's not like, whatever late to the story pretty no. much mm-hmm. so at the time sharon was also employed at milfab and rick did not want her to work there anymore absolutely i mean i would have left her already but, right right but, why are you still here yeah so, he also asked her to stop going in on Saturdays, because apparently she was going in on Saturdays, then everybody quickly realized it was just to see Gary. That's, like, red flag number, like, 130. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Business is close on Saturdays, but you're but going you're to gonna work. But you're going to go... No! No such thing. Are you going to work tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> no, ma'am. <laughs> so, she refused to comply with these requests, She's like, no, I do what I want. Wow, okay. Mm-hmm. And then she eventually moved out. So the pair separated in early 1984, and they were officially divorced by the fall. Rick says he didn't tell his mother about the affair because he didn't know how to handle the situation. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a <laughs> lot to take in. Right? That's what I said. I don't blame him at all. Like, that's a terrible situation. Your heartbroken. Yeah. And probably disgusted. Absolutely. I would be disgusted. So disgusted. And now you're supposed to tell your mom. Your own mother. Yeah. That this is what your spouse is doing to my spouse. With my spouse, at my spouse. Yeah. And they're writing about it. (laughs) You're like, I'm not over it. (laughs) I'm not over it. Uh, uh, Despite Rick's efforts, Ruth did eventually learn about the affair. On November 4th, 1983, Ruthie and Gary were over at some friend's house, and I don't know if they pulled her off to the side or what, but they told her about the affair while they were there. And then she told them when the pair got home, she was going to confront him. Oh, that's never a good idea. No. So they left together, and no one has ever seen her again. The the least deserving person not that mm-hmm. the the son was deserving at all but like come on yeah and on november 5th 1983 at about 5 p.m gary reported his wife missing and at this time ruth was 44 and he is just like oh ruth is gone hmm. but the strange thing was that gary never even called any of ruth's family or friends to see if she was there 
Like, you didn't look for her. Right. You didn't make any phone calls, but you're at the police department reporting her missing. How do you know she's missing? He's just taking the steps to look like he's mm-hmm. innocent. Yeah. That's what you're doing. Yeah. So, on the next Monday, Gary told the cleaning lady that she did not need to come in that day because Ruth was out of town and he was unsure of when his wife would be returning. Not that she was missing, she just went out of town. He did allow the cleaning lady to come the next week, and she did not notice anything of Ruth's missing. Like, all of Ruth's stuff was still there, except for some jewelry. Mm-hmm. Gary claimed she had left with a watch, a diamond ring, and a diamond bracelet. But she apparently didn't need any personal grooming products, her medications, her clothes. Everything was still at the house. Does anybody know how a woman travels? seriously we have like suitcases on suitcases yeah like one is for clothes the rest is for like toiletries yeah and whatever other last time i went to florida i had a suitcase full of shoes yeah a suitcase full of clothes and a whole carry-on bag full of getting ready stuff exactly hair stuff you don't just take jewelry no just like i just really want my diamond when i run away oh and i'm never gonna talk to anybody again (laughs) Just me and my diamond. Me and my diamond. <laughs> God. And everybody was like, this This is not Ruth. This is totally uncharacteristic. She this had elderly parents. She was very close to them. She had children she was close to. She had good friends and good family. Like, Yeah. She didn't just get up and walk away. Right. She wasn't that kind of person. Right. So after she had been missing for several months, the police began to investigate her disappearance as a homicide. But at first, this this did not help them find out much information about what had happened to her. But in 1987, they started a John Doe investigation into her disappearance. So that's like a secret court proceeding that's going on. Like, they don't charge the person. They call it a John Doe hearing. Mm -hmm. And they're gathering evidence behind the scenes. I like that. Mm Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun. Mm Mm-hmm. So during this John Doe investigation, Sharon, the whore girlfriend, Mm. if you're listening, Sharon, I don't like you. Yeah, we don't like you here. Mm -mm. (laughs) (laughs) She would testify during this investigation. She told authorities that on November 5th, Gary had called her and asked her to meet him at the Dane County Airport. She arrived first and she saw Gary drive up in his wife's car which he left in the long-term parking ramp at the airport, and then he got in the car with Sharon. And as the pair traveled back to Stoughton, Gary told Sharon that he had killed Ruth and disposed of her body. Yikes. And she didn't feel like telling anyone this. She is just, uh, like, such a shitty person. Mm Mm-hmm. There is no cap to her, it seems like. No, and she's only giving this testimony because I think they knew that she was involved, and... She wanted to save herself. Yeah, they gave her immunity for her testimony. No. So, yeah, we don't like you, Sharon. We don't. And the story gets a little bit more complicated because apparently Gary had been embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars from Milfab. Oh, my God. And he said that Ruth had threatened to expose him. Probably like, oh, you want to hook up with our son's wife? You're going to prison for embezzling. I mean, yeah, she I would slap just him with that. Reported him without telling him. Though. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the best Don't play. Don't confront people. Don't do that. 
they will come for you they will like we tell you over and over again (laughs) yes so eventually a relative of ruth did locate her car at the airport so they knew she didn't just disappear her car was there right where sharon said it was right so that added up Mm-hmm. sharon did not try to pursue a relationship with gary once he had killed his wife oh wow that, that was the final straw for her i guess she moved on with her life and married someone else okay so someone she literally out of the blue yeah and she had wanted gary to marry her and gary knew that Ruth was never going to go for it. Absolutely not. She was not going to give him a divorce. So he's like, well, I'll just kill her. No. And then Sharon married somebody else. What a waste. Yeah. This is all for nothing. Well, not that, like, mm-hmm. it needed to happen, but, like... Yeah. They didn't end up together. No. She... It was just probably, like, an entanglement. It was definitely an entanglement. And then that was it. And then now a poor woman is dead. Yeah. So Gary moved to California after he killed her in an attempt to get away from his legal troubles. But someone must have failed to inform him that this is not how life works. No. We can we can find you in California. Right. So in 1986, Gary was brought up on the charges for embezzling. He embezzled $645,000 from Milfab. And this was in the 80s. That's like $5 million in today's money. Wow. (laughs) He was not messing around. No, I bet you he was spending it on Sharon. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. He was convicted of this and sentenced to seven years in prison. So the police were like, well, we know he was embezzling. Mm -hmm. We don't know if we're going to be able to prove the murder. So we're going to start with this embezzling. While he's in court and distracted, Smart. we're going to do the murder investigation. Yes. So they did both at the same time. They conducted that secret John Doe investigation while he was hung up in court for embezzling. And he was convicted of the embezzling. I said that already. And then in 1989, he was also convicted by a jury of murdering Ruth. Mm. And the DA had offered to give him, the DA and the judge agreed, and he has consecutive sentences right now, life plus seven years. They said, we'll just give you life. I don't know. <laughs> We're only just going to give you life. If you would tell us where the body was. But he said, I will not do that because I cannot do that because I am innocent. Fuck off. I know. That's the worst to <laughs> me. Fuck off. When people just won't admit it. Like, you know you fucking did it. Yeah. Another case of, I I did something heinous, but I can't say it. No. If you do something, you need to stand on that. Yeah. If you have the balls to do something mm-hmm. you have to back it up you with your, your words wife, yeah the person that trusts you the most correct did something to her poor body that nobody ever found her correct and now you i'm innocent right fuck him yep and sharon and sharon uh many people believe that he probably disposed of her body at Milfab because they have stoves there that get up to 2500 degrees Oh, God. Mm-hmm. And they have never found her. Her body was never discovered. Gary was actually the first person in Wisconsin to be convicted of a murder without a body. I'm glad that they did. I know, right? Yeah, because it's totally... Who else? Yeah, because it was just like the story that I did 
a few weeks or a month ago when the woman went missing and the guy, that was one of the other first cases where they convicted somebody without a body. Mm. But this was the first one, so that kind of proved that you can do it. Right. So it's helped them get convictions in the future. So just so you know, just because we can't find the victim doesn't mean you can't go to prison. Don't just listen to TV saying... Well, we nobody, have a body. No case. Yes, nobody, no case. Body, nobody, yes, case. Yeah, mm-hmm. if there's evidence and somebody's going to tell on you, mm-hmm. and these days there's cameras everywhere. Right. There's no getting away with it. Snitches, cameras. The work. You can't write love letters anymore. We're going to get your text messages. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm really. Yeah, wrong. you really are. <laughs> I feel You're so... You're grossed out. I am. Yeah. Because I imagine being the son. Right. Like, reading the letter. This already upset. Yeah. Because somebody's talking about his wife. Mm-hmm. Then he gets to the end of the letter. Why would you read the whole thing? <laughs> <laughs> Why would you go on and on and read the whole thing? How is this? Gets to the end of the letter. I'd be like, the first two lines, I'd be like, I'm done. That's it. I'm going to throw up. I would have to read the whole thing. Oh, no. Mm-mm. I just need, like, a glimpse if, like, something was... If I was in that position, I would just need, like, a simple fact. Okay. That's enough for me. No, not me. You want the whole, like... I want all... I want to know all of it. Oh, God, no. No? Mm-mm. Because I, ima- <laughs> I imagine I'm Rick reading the letter. Yeah. And then I, I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. I'm reading more. More what the fuck. Mm-hmm. I get to the end, and it says, your dearest, <laughs> Gary. That's, I mean, yeah, just and like... And you throw <laughs> Jump to the signature part. That's true. Just jump down <laughs> Skip there. Skip the details. Skip the details. That's just all... He's probably like, she doesn't do this for me. Right? I'd be like, <laughs> you can do that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. man. Wow. I always get hung up on silly details in these cases. That's all right. It's the little things that make our days in this gloomy thing that we do. So, if Rick is still alive, I feel bad for you. Yeah. Oh, I have a mugshot of our friend Gary here. I'm going to show you, and we can show the people later. Yeah. But I want you to see his face. Okay. Oh, now it didn't come up. Oh, damn. I'll have to show you later. Okay. But he's like... He's super old now. Right. I was wondering. But he's wondering, got a big cheesy smile. Like, he just loves prison. Wow. I yeah. wonder, like, how he looked like at that time. Because to me, I, I think, why would this younger woman be into this man? But I guess this happens a lot. So I don't know. He what. was embezzling $645,000. So he had a lot of money. Okay. He was the president of the company. I'm sure <laughs> he had a lot of class. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of class, you say. <laughs> He had 40 acres. Like, you can come live on my property, and I have all this stolen money. And he probably gave her the diamonds. Oh, gross. Or he sold them. Somebody said he sold them, but I'm not, I'm unsure. He seems like a greedy fuck, so I would he bet. He sold them. Yeah, we'd, he would have sold He probably never them. even gave Sharon any money. He probably <laughs> just told her he was going to. Right. And, like, to me, even if a person has all of that, it's very you know, affluent, mm-hmm. has a lot of money, mm-hmm. whatever. And they're, like, paunchy mm-hmm. and just 
gross looking, mm-hmm. still wouldn't do it for me. Even if they were like disgustingly rich. Right. I couldn't. You wouldn't be doing tricks worth writing letters about. <laughs> no. No, I wouldn't be interested at all. I'd be like, I'm not the one. I'm sorry. No. Me either. Right. Not impressed. No, I'm not impressed. That's why we don't get murdered. Right. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We love you, bud. We love you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at allthesinsofwi at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins of Wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't Don't forget, forget, we we love you. you.